We're going to read together, aren't we? We're going to read our Bible from the Bible. <coughs> now, as we th- I'm glad I've done the, the, glad we've done the children's talk in my church. We do the children's talk after our Bible reading, but I'm glad we've done it this way round today because there are lots of names in our Bible reading today, and I think it's important that we read these names today. Because just as 8 billion people, all 8 billion people are important, aren't they? There is not one person in this whole world that is not important. That's really important that we remember that, isn't it? (coughs) Because they've been created in the image of God. And so here as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, it's not normally a Bible reading we have at Christmas time perhaps. But all of these names here are very, very important, even if we don't know who they are ourselves. God knows them. So let's read from Matthew chapter 1 and from verse 1 to verse uh, 17, or I I might cheekily go into verse 18 a little bit as well, actually. Let's hear the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Sarah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, Aminadab, sorry, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, (coughs) and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Amen. Well, let's uh, begin a search today. Have you found what you're looking for? The search for Jesus. If we're to find the saviour of the world, where are we going to look? Where is it that the answer will be found Matthew chapter 1, the answer comes to us through a family line. So we're asking the question, I suppose, then, to which family will the saviour of the world be born? If you know much about your ancestors, it's likely that you've got a few skeletons in your family closet uh, the, uh, the phrase there refers, doesn't it, to family members whose shameful ways and deeds the family would rather remain hidden from public view. Uh, while appearing on the BBC One's Who Do You Think You Are uh, TV programme, the presenter Esther Rance, and I think it was, this was quite an early episode from around uh, 2010, uh, learns that her great-grandfather, I don't know whether you've got anybody with, with such a name, Montague Richard Leveson, maybe not somebody with that name, but what about with this, this history, that he accidentally killed his family's parlour maid while playing with a gun at the age of 18. Now, That's the kind of thing TV programmes are made of, isn't it? Uh, That's why we watch the programme. You might find that rather dramatic or interesting. Uh, But for Ransom, evidently it was a deeply disturbing truth to find that she had this skeleton in her closet. she, She says it shifted the foundations of her life. Uh, Up until that moment, I'd always believed my family was stiflingly respectable. I I don't think I could say the same thing uh, (laughs) about my my family. But uh, never before in 40 years of TV programme making have I shown my personal emotions on screen. But I did when I was confronted with the truth about this particular ancestor. And she added... Now I know that I was totally wrong. All the assumptions I'd made about my family were blatantly, ignorantly false. And my new knowledge has shifted the foundations of my life. Um, And she makes us think about our family roots. Trawl, if you have the curiosity. But I would offer one piece of advice. Beware. Open an innocent-looking cupboard door and a skeleton may tumble out. Well, the Bible doesn't 
Keep the door shut on the skeletons of family closets, even of its greatest heroes, even when it comes to tracing the ancestry of the Messiah, the Saviour, Jesus. The Bible shows us the unsavoury characters in the family line. The list here includes an adulterer who murdered his lover's husband to cover, cover up the misdeed, idolaters, liars, uh, shall we say, a woman of the town. Uh, there is a notoriously wicked king who burned his sons to death as offerings to a pagan idol. And it's a, so it's a rather uh, uh, motley crew with many a skeleton to bring about the saviour of the world. Perhaps we wouldn't be associated with any such persons and it might be uncomfortable to discover that such a one might be in our family ancestry. But what we'll see then this morning, that in Jesus' ancestry we discover that Jesus indeed is born to be the saviour of sinners, the saviour of unsavoury characters. So what we're going to do then is look at four of those characters this morning and uh, uh, hopefully they will highlight to us in slightly, in an increasingly wonderful way, I think, of just how true that is. God sent a saviour for sinners. The list includes a broad spectrum of people. Some we know about, but others we don't know much about, except for their names. There are kings and there are commoners. Oddly, for the patriarchal Jews, there are women on the list. Also, oddly, for Jewish Genealogy, three of those women were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. The fourth was married to a Gentile, and three were notorious for immorality. The list is clearly then, we just have to say right now, if you don't mind, we have to say that this list clearly isn't fabricated then, is it? This isn't how you would produce a genealogy of your hero. You wouldn't include these names in your list. For that was completely the not done thing. No religious Jew would have put together a list like this to impress his readers of their pedigree. But everyone on this list shares something in common, nevertheless. Whether they were relatively good people or notoriously bad, they were all sinners in need of a saviour. In Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul argues that everyone, that's what we were indicating, wasn't it, earlier with the, the 8 billion figure as well, everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone summarised in the whole of the world, are guilty before God. 
as sinners. He sums it up, does the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is born into sin. Therefore, everyone, all, need a saviour. I need a saviour. You need a saviour. Even the blessed Mary, the mother of Jesus, the pure and perfect sinless saviour who was born into this world, confessed that truth, didn't she? And my spirit, she said, has rejoiced in God, my saviour. She goes on to say that through the one in her womb, God has remembered his mercy to Abraham and his descendants. So, good people. Good people don't need a saviour. They don't need God's mercy. Sinners need mercy. And so are you able to call yourself as such today? (laughs) I'm one who has fallen short of the glory of God. I'm one who has who is numbered amongst that innumerable number of people who have sinned. And I am in need of a saviour. There's the starting point. Well, let's look at these four four women, um, apart from Mary in the list, and see how each of them teaches us something important about God's salvation as provided in Jesus Christ. Firstly, let's see Tamar. Tamar. There in verse 3, Tamar's story occurs in one of the most sordid chapters of the Bible. A very uncomfortable read. Disturbing. In Genesis chapter 38, Judah, Tamar's father-in-law, had taken a Canaanite wife who bore him three sons. Judah took Tamar, a Canaanite woman, as a wife for his first son, but that son was evil in the sight of the, of the Lord, and the Lord took his life, we're told. Judah then told his second son to go in to Tamar to conceive an heir for his deceased brother. It's all starting to sound very murky. Murky and uncomfortable, isn't it? When that son then um, dodged his responsibility, he died. The Lord took his life. Judah then promised Tamar that when the third son grew up, she could be married to him. But he ignored his promise. Tamar then disguised herself as a, I'll use the phrase, woman of the town, Hopefully you you know what I mean, to be sensitive. Hiding her face under a veil then. Uh, Not knowing that it was she, Judah had relations with her, and she became pregnant with twins. Perez, who we read of here in Zerah in verse 3 again. Perez was in the line then that led to Jesus Christ. Is that really where you you want your, your, your family line to be coming from? Tamar's history, though, demonstrates to us that Jesus is the saviour of sinners. Tamar teaches us that salvation, the salvation that Christ brings, is for sinners. 
Okay. He, he deliberately associated did the Saviour in his life and in his ministry. He related, communed with, uh, spent time with tax collectors who were notorious scoundrels for an example. Um, so we're not just talking in theory today, are we, of who the Saviour associated with. Matthew, uh, who is the author of the very gospel we are reading, was a tax collector. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. When the religious Pharisees expressed their disgust with this, you shouldn't be associated with, you, are, you should distance yourself from this kind of family, sinful, dark line. Jesus said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And by that he didn't mean that some are righteous enough to get into heaven on their own, and some aren't. Rather, he wanted the Pharisees, Pharisees to see that they were sinners who needed a saviour, every bit as much as tax collectors and women of the town. <laughs> so are you looking in the right place? Are you someone who is looking for the answer? And are you looking in the right place? Here, Jesus, the saviour, is declared to be the saviour of sinners. To benefit from the reason that Jesus came, to benefit actually from all the wonder and the truth and the majesty of Christmas then you must recognise that you have sinned. And you are one with such people. You need a saviour, and Jesus is that saviour. But how do we obtain that salvation? Well, for that, let's turn secondly to Rahab. For Tamar, that, sh that shows us, Tamar's account indicates to us that the salvation which Christ brings is for sinners. Now let's look at Rahab, who indicates to us that the salvation for which Christ came comes through faith. Rahab, verse 5. Rahab has, has also come down to us with a, a story perhaps we'd, we'd more easily recognise because attached to her name was this um, epithet, Rahab, if, if you knew your Bible well anyway, um, you, would, you would associate Rahab with the phrase, the harlot. Rahab the harlot. <laughs> Just as we can't think about Thomas without the phrase, doubting, so you couldn't think of Rahab Without thinking of the harlot. Like Tamar, she was a Canaanite woman, not Jewish. 
which means that she was excluded from all that was good in the promises of God, his covenant people. She also lived, as we read of her story at the, right at the beginning of the absolutely fascinating book of Joshua, she also lived in Jericho, of all places, that city of sin that was to be destroyed. It was so sinful by God. She knew that the city was going to be destroyed. Uh, she believed that. But she also believed in the God of the Hebrews. How, how did that happen? How did that come about? But we're told that. She said, he is, here is a woman of no, no religious background, you understand. Not in church, not in uh, synagogue, completely outside. And she said, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Amazing. She said those words. And so um, she believed that this was the God's word, word was true. She believed that he was going to destroy the city. And so she hid Hebrew spies and pleaded with them to spare her life from this coming judgment disaster. There's two things there, really, about faith. And we, we learn this in, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11. We read about Rahab. <coughs> By faith, <laughs> so this is Rahab now, the New Testament lifts up her name in this way. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. By faith, she trusted in Yahweh. She trusted in the God of the Jews. She trusted in the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. By faith, she did this thing. And then in James chapter 2, also a second reference in the New Testament. Well, if we add on, that's... Three then, isn't it? Get my mathematics correct. We've had the first here in Matthew chapter 1. In James chapter 2, it states there, In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? There's no contradiction there between what we read in Hebrews 11 and what we read in James chapter 2. In that, uh, Rahab acted out her faith. Uh, she lived it out. She believed, and so she did something. We could summarise it as. James is making that point. The genuine saving faith isn't merely an intellectual ascent, a mere tick-box uh, activity. You know, the, de the demons have that kind of faith, don't they? Satan has that kind of faith, uh, a faith that says, well, yeah, Jesus is God. Of course, Satan knows that, but they're not saved. Right, and they will be in hell, just like all of those who 
Do not have faith. All will be in hell eternally who do not have faith. Rather, saving faith always results in a life of obedience. So Rahab proved that her faith was genuine by her obedience in risking her life even to look after the Hebrew spies. And you can read more of that in Joshua chapter 2. By faith in God's promise, she experienced his salvation. By his grace, she even became an ancestor of the Saviour. So we learned that the salvation that Christ brings comes to sinners through faith. We're indicated that in the inclusion of Rahab's name in the Messiah's lineage. Thirdly, let's see Ruth. And we here, as we look at Ruth, we, re- we learn that the Christ, the, the salvation Christ brings is for Gentiles <coughs> condemned by the law but redeemed by grace. Like Tamar and Rahab, Ruth was a Gentile. Again, somebody you just would not include in this list, would you? However, unlike Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, Ruth was a moral woman. Um, she was a good, a good person through and through. In, in every respect, really. She was married to a Jewish man who died when her mother-in-law uh, decided to return to Israel. Out of love, Ruth chose to go with her, to go with her mother-in-law, who was Jewish. And she made this then great confession, did Ruth, in, and again, there's a whole book dedicated to this person in the Old Testament. Ruth, what a wonderful book it is to read. Your people, she said, shall be my people. And your God, my God. Here, Ruth was expressing her faith in that she desired to be united with God's people of the covenant. But as a Moabite woman, the law of Moses excludes Ruth, surely, from the people of God, as Deuteronomy chapter 23 tells us. She, uh, we could say then, she is a, a, a person who summarizes for us that kind of person who is morally good not a flagrant sinner as anybody might describe them as being Uh, however they are under the curse of God's law God's holy law condemns even the good who express good things. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he, be- he has become 
guilty of all. That condemns. You might say, well, that just condemns everyone, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You work your way through those ten commandments. Interpret them on the heart level as the Saviour, rightly as we should did in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and you will see that you stand guilty before God, actually, not just on one point, but on every count. How then did Ruth find her way in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Saviour, the King, the Righteous One, the Son of David? <laughs> the short book of Ruth tells how Ruth found grace and love in the eyes of a man who was her kinsman, close relative, Redeemer. Boaz was that one. Boaz paid the price of redemption and took Ruth, the Moabite woman, as his bride. It's a beautiful picture there. It's not that Ruth was saved because of her, her desires, her goodness, even that wonderful expression of faith. But it's a picture of how Christ, our Redeemer, paid the price of our redemption, not with money, but something far richer far more glorious than all the money that could be found in all the world by his own blood. Jesus paid the price. And as a result, then, whilst Ruth was brought in by that redemption price into the family of God, similarly, similarly, we Gentiles, we who are outside, we who are also under the curse of the law, are brought in by the blood of Jesus. We were condemned under the law, yet we are brought into his family by his blood. We are his chosen bride, as Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. So Tamar shows that the salvation Christ brings is for sinners. Uh, Rahab teaches us that the salvation Christ brings is received through faith. And Ruth illustrates that salvation is for Gentiles condemned by the law, but redeemed by grace. And that brings us lastly <clears throat> to, well, her name's not actually there, is it? In verse 6. Hmm. Jesse, the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Well, it's Bathsheba, isn't it? Her name's not mentioned. <clears throat> this here is actually what's taking place. Amazingly, what is taking place here is an emphasis 
on the terrible sin of David. That's why Bathsheba's name isn't mentioned there. Um, Most probably Bathsheba was also a Jew. I think 1 Chronicles chapter 3 indicates that. But as such, she and David remind us of the fact that even believers can fall into sin. Our salvation is not dependent on our continuing to live a wonderful life. Our salvation is dependent on Jesus Christ, the saviour of sinners. That's what we've been saying all the way through. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that our salvation is dependent on, on our continuing to be good people. No, David demonstrates that to us. So the salvation that Christ brings is sufficient to preserve his people in spite of their sins. So we're reminded of that in the inclusion of the wife of Uriah in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was born into this world to be our saviour. We never justify sin. We never say it's a small thing for Christ shed his every drop of his blood for all of our sin. It's great And it should be taken seriously, more seriously than we do. And we never justify sin. Bathsheba's place among the ancestors of Christ shows us, though, that God's grace in preserving his elect, even when they sin, is a glorious truth. We have assurance that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, God will preserve his chosen elect, all of them, all from the four winds of the earth, bringing them in. He will present them, Jesus will, he will present them to the Father on that glorious day complete, even though they have sinned, even though they haven't loved God as they they should have, even though they may have fallen into sin, maybe even if they have committed acts that they had never committed before. These four women, then I'm saying to you, illustrate from different angles the great news that God saves sinners. If you failed terribly, if you don't think you're worthy, if, and you're not, if you don't, if you know you've, you've you failed terribly, God sent the Savior for you. Maybe you don't just have skeletons in your closet today. Maybe you are the skeleton. Yeah, I'm the skeleton. I'm not part of the the cure. I am the disease. Well, this genealogy I'm saying to you today invites you to come to Jesus and ask him to save you from your sins. If you have trusted in Christ as saviour but have fallen into sin, you must repent of it. But it doesn't mean that you are excluded. 
Turn to him again. Experience forgiveness in Christ. Walk in fellowship with him. Again, in Christ, God sent a saviour for sinners. Well, it's a wonderful uh, genealogy here. We've highlighted four names, and I'm just going to make a few concluding remarks remarks for you uh, now. Uh, it's a wonderful genealogy. It, it, it does remind us, doesn't it, that our faith isn't uh, rooted in myth or legend. It's rooted in history. Here it is. Matthew is writing primarily, or initially we should say, to first century Jewish people who kept detailed genealogical records. I haven't done a very good job of that. I think we've got back about four or five generations. That's about as far as we've managed to go. I don't know whether you're someone who's, who've, who's traced your history. But Matthew clearly hasn't fabricated this. Um, if he had, then he would have been challenged, but he wasn't. It's a historical faith that we have. And a Christ who has been born into this world um, in reality. Uh, Joanne Shetler, I don't know if you've heard of her, um, a recent uh, missionary to the Philippines, and she was with the Balangueo peoples there in, in the Philippines. Uh, she translated the Bible into their language, and she was trying in the early days to tell them of the good news of the Saviour. But it was slow going. One day, a man called Amma who had apparently adopted her as his Balangir daughter. <laughs> Fascinating what that was all about, I don't know. But, uh, but she'd picked up an English, uh, uh, but he'd picked up an English New Testament from her desk, opened it to this genealogy in, on page one of Matthew's Gospel and asked her, you mean this has a genealogy in it? She said, yeah, but just skip over that so you can get to the good part. Maybe you've been tempted to do the same. All those names, it's hard work, isn't it? But his eyes were riveted to that page and he said these words, you mean this is true? <laughs> you mean this is true, he asked as he struggled through the list of names. Well, Shetler apparently got some paper and <coughs> wrote the genealogy from Adam to Jesus, from the ceiling down to the floor. Amma took it all over the village, explaining we always thought it was the rock and the banana plants that gave birth to people. But we don't have their names written down. Look, here are all the names written down. And uh, Balangio, the Balangios loved Matthew's written genealogy. It showed to them the truth of the Bible and urged them that truth did to turn to the Saviour. 
So where, uh, where are we going to find? What an unlikely story this is for the Saviour to be born into such a family as this. But Christ was born for sinners. So if you consider yourself amongst that great number of sinners, then you are in a good place. But you must turn to Jesus today. You must put your trust in him before it's too late. He's beckoning, he's calling you to put your faith in him. Uh, Just as then Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba, it seems then, uh, did turn and had faith also. The historical record of the family root of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, shows us that he is the son of David, he is the son of Abraham as well, promised by God to be the saviour of sinners. Amen.